0: So good to have you join us this week with this message. Um, As you take a listen, you'll notice that it's not Uh, me, Pastor James, uh, speaking in this message. Uh, This is a guest speaker that we had at my church. Was actually uh, an elder in my church. Uh, Tom, he was filling in for me while I was away on vacation, and with his permission, uh, we are posting his message in our continuing series on what's next as we take a look at the second part of the tribulation period. And so, pray that Tom's message is a blessing to you, and we hope you have a great day.
1: So this morning, we are going to be continuing in the series, What's Next? Which is a series that Pastor James has been going through. Even though he's not here this morning, we're going to keep going with it. Um, And if you've been with us, then you know that we've covered uh, a bunch of topics, basically moving through the book of Revelation, starting with the rapture, the tribulation period part one, the dragon, and the beast. And if you missed any of these messages or just want to catch up, They've all been available um, now on the church's website, and also you can find them on Facebook, but there's ways to find them in catch up. So today's scripture, we're gonna be in Revelation and we're covering chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and a little bit of chapter 19, which seems like a lot. Now I'm gonna, for a point of order, if everybody has a bulletin, if not, there's some in the back, I'm sure. There are uh, sermon notes, and you're going to see it says 15 through 19, and it's got a little bit of an outline. The reason I'm pointing this out is because if any time in the future you wanted to go back and reread some of the scripture we're going to talk about, the chapters are referenced next to the major bullet points. And I say that because I, unfortunately, made a mistake this morning. And through technological errors, I have no slides available. So I apologize for those of you who like the slides. We're not going to have them. But the scripture references are in there, and it's, it's, it's okay because the bulletin notes will help kind of guide us through this, and again, this is a, it's kind of an overview, right? So, if we go back to, like, what the purpose of this series is, is this is an an overview of the book of Revelations, an overview of the end times, and we're flying at a high altitude, so we're trying not to get deep into the weeds, we're trying not to go into the details, the things that are argued about, I'll point some of this stuff out, but we won't go into every single interpretation and sign, what we're going to do is we're basically going to uh, assume what they call a futurist standpoint, and if you wanted to know more about the different ways to interpret the book, Pastor James covered that when he talked about the Tribulation Part 1, so I won't, I won't go into there, but we're going to do the futurist standpoint, move forward, and discuss what my topic is today, which is the Tribulation Part 2, right? which is the last three and a half years of the Tribulation period. So again, we just want to provide an overview, just a working knowledge of this, and I'm also gonna cover um, what the beast and the harlot, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So let's start with a little bit of a recap on where we are and how we got here. First and foremost, again, this is a prophetic book. This is a vision that John was given in the wilderness, and what that means is that it's a little hard for us to understand. The thing about prophecy is is that it's easier to look back through prophecy than it is to look forward through prophecy. And what do I mean by that? There is a lot of prophecy about Jesus, about his birth, his death on the cross, his resurrection. And it's easy for us to look at those prophetic verses and go, oh, these verses talk about Jesus, because we're on the other side of it. We're looking back at the event. So it's easier to make those connections. We happen to be in the middle of this. <clears throat> so we don't actually, you know, the end times have not happened yet. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to take that, a group of prophecy and project forward what we think is going to happen. This would be like before Jesus came, looking at the prophecy and trying to predict what was going to happen. Is it easy? No, right? How many people knew that Jesus was coming and expected him when he, when he was there? How many people thought he was going to die on the cross? Not a lot, but there were some. Right? you can think about the wise men um, and some of the people who were waiting for him at the temple when he was a baby so there were people who understood the prophecy and applied it and, but again, it takes a lot of study and a lot of wisdom and so what we're trying to do here is, is do that we're trying to take this prophetic vision and look forward and try and understand what the future is going to hold and with that, we're going to make mistakes right so, you know, anybody sees me in heaven and goes hey Tom, you got this totally wrong right I got it. We probably get some of this wrong. But we have a general idea of what's going to happen. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, how did we get here? So, we, we covered a lot of what the book of Revelation was. And we'll start with, with a period that's kind of like today, right? So, you would picture what I'll call now. Everybody is just living life. We're going to church on Sunday. We're going to eat a nice dinner afterwards, lunch. Um, everybody's going to be going to work this week or on vacations. We're worried about birthday parties, picking up gifts, going shopping, right? Bills to pay, all that stuff. The normal daily events that kind of govern our lives. And then the rapture happens. And what the rapture is, is the church, those faithful to Christ are going to be taken from this world in an instant. So at that point, a whole bunch of people are just going to disappear from the earth, somewhere between like two to three in every ten people, right, depending upon the numbers you look, are going to be gone in an instant just like that. And it's going to throw things into disarray. And most think that's going to lead to what we call the tribulation period. So the tribulation period is a seven-year period. And these timelines come from Daniel. And again, this is stuff that, this is just a review. And so this seven-year period marks the last seven years of kind of the civilization as we know it, right? Now, the earth doesn't really end at the end of the seven years. There's something beyond there. But this seven years is going to be a time of turmoil, a time of strife, and not something that if you had to choose, you would want to be around for. And how do we define these? Well, the beginning ends up being defined by an event, which would be a signing of a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. That is considered to be the start of the seven-year period. And then we go three and a half years to the middle point, and that also has a defining event, which we call, Daniel calls in his prophecy, the abomination which causes desolation. And you can think of this as a way of of the the beast, right? So this is the Antichrist, is going to set himself up in the temple, and he's going to say to the world, he is God, and demand worship from them. That demarks the middle. And then we have three and a half more years of strife sometimes referred to as the Great Tribulation because it's even worse than the first three and a half years. And at the end of it, the defining event is the return of Jesus to the earth. So those mark the bookends and the middle of the seven-year period. So let's just go over what happened in the first three and a half years, and I'll do this rather quickly. So we have what we call the first seven seal judgments. We get the name seal because Jesus is handed in heaven a scroll, and it has seven seals on it, and he is the only one worthy to open it. So, so every time he breaks one of these seals to open the scroll, something happens on Earth. So when the first seal is broken, the Antichrist comes, and he is coming to power, and again, this is through peaceful means, right, because he's pictured with a bulb and no arrows, so we think this means some sort of a political power. The second seal is broken, and then we have war, most likely on a global scale, a massive war. Followed by the third seal, which is famine, right? So a person will work a day to have one meal, right? That kind of a global famine. And that's, again, bad, right? So you think about it, you're just going to be progressively starving. You can't work enough to buy enough food. The fourth one is death, all right? And then this death is going to take with it a quarter of the population that is left on the earth. So a fourth of the people are going to die at this point in time. The fifth seal is broken, and at this, we have a little bit of a break here, and the saints are crying out for justice. So these are the martyrs, people who have been killed in Jesus' name. They're crying out to God for justice, and he tells them to wait. Justice will come, just not quite yet. The sixth seal is broken, and there is a great earthquake that, again, causes devastation throughout the world. The seventh seal is then broken, and what we have is basically the ushering in of seven trumpet judgments. So you can think of this as when breaking the seventh seal, now we've got another subset of judgments that are going to happen. So with the seven tru- trumpet judgments, excuse me, the first trumpet is blown, and a third of the earth is burned up. And this includes a third of all the trees and all the green grass, right? So let's say that again. A third of the earth is burned, a third of all trees, and a third of, I'm sorry, and all of the green grass is burned up. The second trumpet is blown, and and we have something like a mountain is the description here, is thrown into the sea. And then we have the description that a third of the sea becomes like blood. A third of the creatures are going to die, so a third of all life in the sea is dead. A third of all boats are destroyed. The third trumpet is blown. Something like a great star falls from heaven. We don't have a better description than that. But a third of the fresh water becomes bitter. So these would be lakes, streams, creeks. A third of that becomes bitter, and you can't drink it. And if you do try to drink it, it causes death to those who do. The fourth trumpet is blown, and the sun, moon, and stars are struck so that they are a third dimmer. Right? So a picture like a dimmer switch, and somebody drops down the light levels by a third. All of a sudden, we get a lot less light coming through. The fifth one is blown. And we get what I'm going to describe as demon locusts. Whether these are figurative, literal, we don't know. But something that has been described as demon locusts are allowed to go out the earth and it's going to result in torture for those who are not sealed by God. So these are going to be non-believers. And they're going to be tortured for five months. And then it's going to stop. And during this time, things are going to be bad for those people. The Bible actually says that they will seek death, but death will flee from them. So it's so bad they're going to want to die, but they won't be allowed to. The sixth one is a horde of some sort is going to be released on the earth and is going to kill a third of mankind by smoke, fire, smoke, and sulfur. So another third of the population that exists then is going to be taken out. And then the seventh trumpet is blown, and this ushers in another subset of judgments that we're going to call the seven bowl judgments, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today is the seven bowl judgments. So the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpets all that I just talked about, that has happened before the midpoint of the tribulation period. So in the first three and a half years, all that takes place. So now you have to kind of go back and imagine. So we have world as it is now, right? Everything's fine. All of a sudden people disappear and then chaos kind of erupts and then we get through this period and at the midpoint, what are you going to find? How is the world going to look? And I tried to imagine this because I thought it would be helpful to So this is the starting point of where we're at this morning. And so I thought, how is Pennsylvania going to look, right? So living in northeast Pennsylvania, we have pluses and minuses. There's benefits and drawbacks. Some of the benefits are we got a lot of trees, right? So if you like the woods, it's beautiful. You can see all the trees that are out there. We've got plenty of fresh water. We've got lots of lakes, right? We've got um, the reservoir up on 29, close to Pikes Creek, Moon Lake, right? We've got Francis Slocum Lake, Harvey's Lake. That's just this side, so we've got all this fresh water, Huntsville Reservoir, and, and then we also have some bad points, right? And this is for <laughs> the Florida contingent that's watching online. So I looked, and this is based on a study, but of the 48 continu- conti- you know, continuous United States, right? So the 48 states that make up the big body of the United States. Pennsylvania ranks 41st when it comes to sunlight, right? We are low on that. So where are we at now? So at the midpoint of the, the tribulation period, if you were to look out, let's say you were going um, on 81 towards ha- uh, Hazleton, you could see the beautiful mountains and everything or anywhere around here. A third of those trees are gone. They're burned up. So what used to be like trees, as far as you can see, a third of them are going to be destroyed, just sizzling embers. All the green grass, gone. Right? A third of the lakes that we get are water from, or drinking water comes from, if we like to go fishing, they're going to be undrinkable. right? And most likely, the fish that are in them are going to be dead. So we're going to have these waters that are going to be stagnant, like blood. Probably going to smell bad, have dead fish floating everywhere. You won't be able to go and utilize these. Again, we have very low levels of sunlight compared to the rest of the nation, and now that's turned down a third. So instead of being a bright, sunny day, it's going to be even darker than it was before. So this is the state of the world you're going to find. Oh, and the church is gone. All faithful Christians are gone at this point. There will be some that will come to Christ, but the bulk of the church is gone. And if you do the math, roughly 7 out of 10 people are also gone. That would be including those who were taken in the rapture, those who died in the the seal judgments, and those who died in the the trumpet judgments. So every 7 out of 10 people is now either dead or gone. And this is the starting point of what I get to talk about today. Okay? Now, I know. It's not all doom and gloom, right? There is some benefit to the message, but it is a little depressing. I'll give you that. So that's where we start in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So this is John being introduced to the seven angels who are going to have the seven bowls of God wrath. Again, this is also, this is bad because God is literally pouring out his wrath upon the earth. The wrath has been stored up. And you can read in the Old Testament where it talks about God storing up wrath, right? This is that wrath that has been stored up throughout time. The benefit here is that these bowls will be poured out and then that is the end, right? So that's good news for us. We're coming up to the end of these judgments, this time of turmoil, and it will be finished. So now we're going to go through the bowls, i going to go through them one by one and talk about what they do so the first bowl, that's Revelation 16 uh, verse 2 so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image so there's going to be a lot of similarities with these judgments and judgments that have came before, and you're going to notice that, and you're also going to notice that where judgments that came before were partial, these are more total. So what do I mean by that? So this is similar to the demon locust judgment that we talked about, where there was five months of suffering for those who were non-believers. Here what we have is we have painful sores are going to come upon anyone who has the mark of the beast, who has worshipped its image, and there's no time limit given. So the moment that this plague is poured out until the end, these sores are going to exist, and you're actually going to see them referenced in the future. Now, this also helps us to identify the time frame. Right? Because if those of you are saying, well, how do we know that these seven bowl judgments occur after the midpoint? Well, remember, the midpoint was when the beast is going to come. He is going to set himself up as God. And he actually gets a false prophet, who we'll talk about in a little bit. And all of this is done because he wants to worship. And the false prophet is going to make people worship the image of the beast and is going to take the mark. And this is going to happen at that midpoint. So being that the first bowl judgment is being poured out about people who worship the beast and bear his mark... We know that this occurs after the midpoint. And that's how we arrive at the timeline. So with that, we have painful sores. And again, if you're a believer, if you have refused to worship the beast or refuse to bear his mark, um, you will be protected from this judgment. But the vast majority are going to be affected by it. And again, one of the things that you'll hear is sometimes people think that this has something to do with the mark itself, that, that maybe like, physically it's going to have some sort of effect, skin irritation, that's going to cause these boils. It could just be the plague is focused. E- either way, the result is going to be the same, that these people are going to be in pain, again, from the point that it's, it's, it's poured out until the end. So the second bull judgment. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. So again, this is similar to the first judgment where we lost a third of the sea. Now it is complete and total, Right? So the blood is described like the blood of a corpse, and there's a lot of interesting things that you can go into with the blood of the corpse, but the the main takeaway is that the sea is gone. The sea is gone, all the fish are gone, that resource is not gonna be available. And being as we are at a point now we've lost a third of our grass, a third of our trees, you know, we've lost a third of the freshwater, a third of the sea beforehand, the world is gonna be very resource limited at this point. We're gonna have a hard time fulfilling basic needs, and now at this point the sea is gone. So that's fishing industries are going to be, are going to be highly affected. Some places, again, we're lucky we have a lot of fresh water. Some places actually do what they call desalination. They take seawater, remove the salt, and that's their drinking water. Well, if this is like the blood of a corpse, that's probably not going to be possible. But what we do know for certainty is that all the fish is going to be dead. So if anybody likes to go to the shore for a vacation, At this point your shore vacation is no longer going to be realistic right because you're going to go onto the beach what you're going to see is not blue beautiful water you're going to see murky dark disgusting dead water with all this detritus and dead animals it's going to be nasty and the smell is going to be absolutely horrid and this is going to be worldwide so at that point you know the sea is gone third bowl judgment The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became like blood. Again, very similar to the first judgment where we lost a third of the fresh water. Now we've lost all of the fresh water. So that's all of the sea and all of the fresh water gone. And again, we're not told here that all the creatures that live in the fresh water are gone, but I think it's a pretty good idea that if, if... We can't drink the water. The fish aren't going to be able to drink the water anyway. Fish are actually very sensitive, even though, like, changes in temperature and stuff. So we've lost all the sea, all the fresh water. What are we drinking at this point? I actually was thinking about this question, and I have no good answer. Maybe wells, maybe rain, but it's very limited, right? So, again, in an area where, you know, we take water for granted in the northeast, um, we're not going to have any. We're going to have very, very limited water resources. The fourth bowl. The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So the fourth angel pours out his bowl, <clears throat> and all of a sudden, the heat of the sun has turned up. And I was thinking about this, and I thought it was pretty interesting. Because when you think about it, we get two things from the sun, right? We get light and we get heat. But those are separate things. Excuse me. So at this point, the light is struck down. So we never are told that the light comes back. So we still have the sun at about two-thirds of its current brightness. But all of a sudden, the heat is turned way up. And you would say, like, how is this possible? Well, I mean, light and solar radiation are different. So, you know, you can actually get sunburn on cloudy days, right? So it's kind of the same thing, we think, is that the light emitted is gonna be turned down, but the amount of heat that's generated by the sun is gonna be turned way up. And it's gonna result in scorching temperatures. And what do you like to do when it's really hot outside and you're being scorched by the sun? Right, drink your water. What's not gonna be available? Water, right, things are gonna be bad the fifth bowl judgment <clears throat> the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the god of heaven for their pain and sores they did not repent of their deeds so the fifth bowl judgment <clears throat> excuse me is darkness but this darkness is focused just on the beast's kingdom and the people that are in there and you say this is kind of a, a weird one that only have darkness in one area and that's true but we've seen this before, this kind of localized darkness. Think back to Egypt during the time of Moses, where there was darkness in that area. So this darkness was focused, again, just on the beast's kingdom and the people that are in it. But notice that they still nod their tongues in anguish. I, I don't know if I've ever nod my tongue in anguish. I, I imagine I'd have to, it would have to be very uncomfortable to do that. So I'm thinking that things are really bad. They still have, if you notice, um, for the pain and sores, right? So again, just like I said before, the sores that they got from the first judgment are still there. So now they have the sores, there's no water, the heat's turned way up, and the reason I separate that heat from the light is here, they're still complaining about it, but they have no light now. So all the benefit of seeing by the sun is taken away, and all the benefit of being burned by it is still there. The sixth bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs to go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So the sixth bowl is poured out, and the river runs dry. Now, the River Euphrates has some historical significance. It was considered a uh, boundary for the the Empire of Rome. It's a natural barrier, something that, if you were doing like troop movements, wouldn't be easy to cross, right? Now, this is specifically dried up, and we're told why it's dried up, so that the kings from the east could cross in and join. And then we get, again, something that's rather odd. So we get, we, we see the three characters that we've been introduced to before, right? The dragon, who represents Satan, the beast who represents the Antichrist and the false prophet, right, he was described as another beast. And out of each of their mouths, we get a spirit that looks like a frog. And I'm glad that this is kind of interpreted for us because I wouldn't know what to do with that. But they're frog-like because they're described as demonic. So now, again, this is this is imagery, right? It's figurative language. These aren't gonna be literal dragons and beasts. So what do we have here? And And the way this gets interpreted is that, you know, basically, evil spirits or people who are possessed by evil spirits are going to be sent. And they're going to be sent to the kings of the world. So picture this. The beast has his kingdom. The river is dried up in preparation for troop movements. But now he needs to gather his forces. So what he does is he sends out to these other kings in the world these people who are kind of possessed by these dark spirits. And because they're possessed, they get to do some miracles, right? Think about Moses, how he performed the miracles in front of a pharaoh, And these are going to be done to convince these kings to join in with the beast and to assemble the armies. And we're actually told why all this goes down, right? To assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So this is it. This is the final battle. This is the battle of Armageddon. And James is going to talk about this next week when he talks about... You see, I get the doom and gloom message, right? This is all kind of bad news. He gets to talk about Jesus coming back, the glorious battle, everything's going to be better. I get to talk about all the bad stuff that's going to happen beforehand. So I think that was purposeful when he planned his vacation. But this is all in preparation for that, right? This is all going to be um, leading up to this great battle. The seventh bowl was poured out into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So this is the seventh bowl, right? And the seventh bowl for us is the last bowl. Like I said, it is done. So this is the end of God's wrath and the end of the judgments. And what is this? This is another earthquake. And again, I said the, the parallels here. So we had an earthquake in the trumpet judgments, and the seal judgments, excuse me. We had an earthquake. It was earlier. And now we have another earthquake. And this one is described as the greatest earthquake that ever will be on this earth. And instead of describing it myself, I thought I would just read it for you. So we're in chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. So this is an earthquake. I mean, every island fled away. Islands don't move, at least they're not supposed to, right? So the islands are totally out of place. Mountains? It says there's no mountains. There's no mountains at all. Anywhere. Which is, I mean, it, again, the whole earth has a different surface shape because of how great this earthquake is. Entire cities are destroyed. This earthquake is massive, just to give you an idea. So, with that, that is the last of the bold judgments, and that is the end of God's wrath. Some things to note if you'll notice that even though these judgments are being poured out upon the earth, people don't repent. They don't turn to God and say, I am sorry for, for what we've done. Give him glory. No, they, it says throughout that they curse God and they refuse to repent. So even though all these things are happening and they seem to know the source, right? They, they just don't, don't want don't to repent. So that brings us to the end of chapter 16. Right? So we've covered chapter 15 and 16 so far. And then we begin 17 and 18 are also kind of grouped together. Now, there's an interesting kind of break here, because we go from learning about these seven bowl judgments, and the seven bowl judgments start somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, and they go to the end. okay? And then all of a sudden, we have this kind of turn, and John is given another vision. And this vision is similar to some of the other visions that he has received. Go back to uh, James talking about the dragon and the beast. And so... I'm going to read um, Revelation, verse 17, just to kind of give us an intro. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, which whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in, in the spirit into a wilderness. Right? So that carried away in the Spirit is a clue to us that what we're about to see is a prophetic vision. Right? There's going to be a lot of imagery, not literal things. And also, it, it kind of demarks here a kind of separate section. Because what we're going to see here doesn't take place after the last bowl judgment. It actually takes place during the entire tribulation period. Right? So we're going to see some imagery that goes from you know, the start all the way through the end, and I'll help you to break that down. So, the woman goes by many names, right? The great prostitute, Babylon the great, the harlot. I'm going to use the harlot because I like that one the best. Um, So, again, but if I I bounce around, that's what we're talking about. So, what did John see? So, Revelation 17, we're starting at like the end of verse 3, and we're going to go through the beginning of verse 6. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, So there's a lot to go over here. Like, what are we looking at here? And again, it's figurative, because it would be really scary to see an actual woman riding this beast. It would be horrifying and drinking blood like a vampire. That would be nuts. But this is all kind of figurative language. This goes back to previous figurative language that we've looked at. So remember, the dragon was the symbol of the devil, right? That was the image that was conveyed to talk about the devil. And it's important to point out that at the midpoint, all right, the midpoint of the tribulation, that three-and-a-half-year mark, The devil is cast down to earth, right? And that's important to note. The first beast, usually just described as the beast, is the Antichrist. And just to remind everybody, I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems or crowns on its head and blasphemous names on its heads. Um, and And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So, again, this prophetic vision, this is talking about the Antichrist, and we, we went over this, but I just wanted to you know talk about it, because you can see there's a lot of similarities between the beast that the woman is riding and the beast that is representative of the Antichrist. And because of this, we tend to equate them. We tend to say that they're the same. So this woman is riding a beast, and we understand this beast to be the Antichrist that was revealed to us in Revelation chapter 13. So um, important for the timeline here is that when the beast, right, when the Antichrist suffers his apparent mortal wound and then is resurrected, he's not actually resurrected. There is a tendency, and and this is how I think would be a good way to think about it, is that there's like a dark mirror here, or like a corrupted reflection, is kind of the best way I can describe it. The devil is trying to mimic God because he wants the glory, but he can't do it completely, so he does it in a way that's kind of corrupted, not quite the same. So when this beast is resurrected, it's not like Jesus being resurrected. The way we interpret this is that the devil himself possesses the body and brings it back to life. So he's not restoring the Antichrist's life. He's bringing his presence into the body. And that is what we think is going to happen right around the three and a half year mark. So the devil is in possession of the Antichrist's body. And then we get the second beast, which is the false prophet. So this is Revelation 13, uh, 11 through 17. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak it might cause those who would would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So this is the false prophet that we're talking about. So again, the beast that the woman is sitting on right now, we interpret to be the Antichrist. And then we come to the harlot herself. And there's some attributes of the harlot that (coughs) we're gonna go over. I'm gonna go over them one by one. And try to interpret them and discover who this harlot actually is, right? So the first one, she is described as the great prostitute, Babylon the Great, and the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations, right? That's a great title. Love that one. So We get a little bit of an interpretation here from the angel who's showing John the vision. Uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse 18 tells us, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth, right? So right there we know, okay, this is not an actual woman. This woman is a city? And the city has dominion over the kings of the earth, right? It can be a little confusing. One of the clarifying things is that sometimes city here, you know, isn't really taken literally. And, And I have two examples, right? So, for instance, we could say, Rome, have you been to Rome, right? And when we, what do we mean by Rome? We mean the city of Rome, right? Or you could say, what does Rome think of that? Well, on that point, that could be interpreted as the Roman Catholic Church, right? Because they refer to it sometimes just as Rome. We do the same thing with Washington, D.C., right? So you go, oh, I'm going to Washington, right? So you're going to Washington, D.C. Or you could say... Well, I don't like what Washington is doing, right? Well, we're not talking about the city. We're talking about the government there, the seat of government. So this term city may not mean like a physical city, but it's some sort of entity like that, Does that make sense. And the best way, I think, to clarify this is to pull passage out of Ezekiel. So I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 35 through 39. Just listen, and then I'll kind of explain it. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because the blood of your children uh, that you have given to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who loved you and all those who hated you. I will gather them against you from every side and, they will, and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all of your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. And bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw, you down, throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewels, and leave you naked and bare. Just make a note of that right there. Strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewels, and leave you naked and bare. We'll come back to that. Who is this prostitute? right? See, so again, I get the fun messages. This is a lot of great... This prostitute actually isn't a person. This is the nation of Israel. God is giving this message to Ezekiel, and the prostitute he is talking about is the nation of Israel. And here we get an important point to help us kind of interpret what's going on here in Scripture. The prostitute is a depiction of unfaithfulness. And we can see that because this prostitute that's riding the beast is saying that she's the mother of all prostitutes, and the king's... um, or with her in sexual immorality, right? This isn't actual sexual immorality. What this is, is this is unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness to God. So Israel is described as unfaithful and a prostitute in these ways because she has, and, and there's a section before this that really goes into detail, but at this point in time, the nation of Israel is in secret, right, Is it's described as, making idols to false gods and um, practicing sorcery and divination and child sacrifice, And these things are not pleasing to God. These things are forbidden, and they're doing them. And so he describes her, the nation of Israel, as a prostitute because of her unfaithfulness. And so we apply that same thing here. So what we have is we have some sort of entity, city, we'll call it, and what it is is it's unfaithful. It's unfaithful to God. And it could be the root, right? It's described as basically the root of all unfaithfulness. And the the reference to Babylon goes back to historic Babylon. Where, again, we have um, the city of Babylon being unfaithful to God and obsessed with um, idolatry, right, and uh, material things and worldly pleasures. And so all of that comes together in what we think this woman is. So what else describes the woman? Well, she is described as being seated on many waters. And this is interpreted for us by the angel. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So the conclusion is, it's global, right? She is seated at these waters. This system is throughout the entire earth. She's also described as the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her and those who dwell on earth are drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. Again, sexual immorality here is unfaithfulness. So this system is something that is going to be unfaithful and it's going to be spread everywhere and people are going to participate in it. The kings of the earth will be your political systems, right? So those that are leading countries are gonna participate in this system. She is arrayed in purple and scarlet and is adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. This is wealth. She has status, she has wealth. So this system is gonna be a very wealthy system. It's gonna be highly respected by the peoples of the earth. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. This one is kind of terrible. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. Right? Again, not physically drinking this blood, but loving, killing the saints. So in the saints here are, are all of us. We're all saints. And if you believe in Jesus, and specifically we're talking about the martyrs here. So these are people who died for their faith. So this organization, this entity, is going to be one that persecutes the church violently. She is seated atop the beast. And she has described previously as having dominion over the kings of the world. So let's put this all together, right? So what is this thing? The way this typically gets interpreted is this is a one-world religious system that is unfaithful to God and um, attacks the church. And how do we get there? Well, the the, the, the figuring kind of goes like this. You go back to the rapture. In a moment, all the people in the world that are faithful to Jesus are gone. And this kind of throws the world into chaos. I mean, think about if people just kind of disappeared. You'd have empty houses, empty cars, people are just gone, people you know. And so people start to look for answers. And out of this chaos and turmoil, we get the, the, the tribulation period. But also they think out of this chaos and turmoil, the Antichrist is going to rise as a political power. So he's going to come in and he's going to say, oh, we're going to, do, we're going to be peaceful. And he's going to join together nations. And he's going to have this conglomerate of nations. And alongside of him, there's also going to be this spiritual side to things. And I say it like that because it's going to be a false spirituality. And this organization is going to try and be worldly. going to try and gather up maybe all the rest of the religions of the world and form a unified religion that comes up alongside this global government. So you have a kind of a global religion and a global government. And for the first three and a half years the global religion is going to be kind of in charge of all the governments of the world. And we get that because the the harlot is riding the beast. She is atop the beast, right? And it's just like somebody riding a horse. If everything's going right, you should be in control if you're riding the horse, right? The horse shouldn't be able to do whatever it wants to do. So she's riding this beast, she is in control, and she is directing it. Now, what happens halfway through? Well, we know that the beast is killed. He is resurrected, in a sense. And then he puts himself up as a center of worship. He calls himself God and demands that the world would worship him. He gets a false prophet and an image, and the prophet gets to do miracles, and everybody has to have their mark, or they can't buy or sell anything. So how does that work if you have this one-world religion? The answer is it doesn't. And that leads us to the fall. The angel actually predicts this for us. So in Revelation 17, verses 16 through 17, we get the following. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Right. So, halfway through, this is kind of the basic interpretation. Halfway through, the beast is going to get tired of this one world system, right? Because what's Satan in? Satan's in for it for himself. But he just got cast out of heaven halfway through, and now he's possessed the body of the Antichrist, and he's going to establish himself as God. He wants it all. He doesn't want to compete with another religion. So what they're going to do is they're going to overthrow the harlot, and they're going to strip her naked and bear. Well, What does that mean? Those were a representation of her wealth, right? Her clothes and her jewels were her wealth and status. They're going to take that, and keep it for themselves and then they're going to destroy her so the one world religious system most likely is going to be gone and at that point the antichrist is going to set himself up as the one world religious system and everyone is going to have to worship him and this parallels too if you remember what I said at the end of Ezekiel um, chapter 16 I was reading earlier they shall strip you of your clothes take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare very interesting parallel So what happens? A couple more things. So I just want to point out here that um, we have what I think are three main systems. We have a political system, which is the Antichrist. The religious system, which is going to be the harlot, and then usurped and destroyed will be the Antichrist himself. And then we also have an economic system. Because remember, she was described as being wealthy. We also get a little bit more idea after she falls of just how wealthy she was and how wealthy she made the nations. So in Revelation 18.9, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So the governments of the earth are sad that she's gone. Revelation 18.15, the merchants of these wares, and before that there's a long group of goods, who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Right? So the merchants who sold this stuff and got a lot of wealth, they're going to be sad because she's gone. Revelation eighteen seventeen through 19. <clears throat> and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw the dust on their heads and they wept and mourned. The entire world is sad that she's gone. And mostly, it's kind of an economic thing. Because what do they do now? What kind of, what do they have their business with? Well, the Antichrist has come, and he's taken control of the political system. He's taken control of the religious system. And by making people get the mark so they can't buy or sell anything, he's controlled now the economic system. So everybody in the world, if you want to play ball, is going to have to worship the beast. Everybody's going to have to worship Satan. And this is kind of the setup here. So, some takeaways. The one thing I want to point out is that the response in heaven is a little different, right? So you see all the people on earth are mourning over her, but Revelation 19, verses 1 through 2, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So with that, there's mourning on earth, but there's rejoicing in heaven. So I know I'm over time, and I was told I shouldn't go over time because the food is downstairs, and I'm, and I'm done. We're going to wrap this up. So I just want to conclude by saying that, again, what we wanted to accomplish here was to give a high-level overview of what's going to happen. So we talked about the tribulation period, specifically the seven bowl judgments in the second half. And we talked about the beast's relationship with this one world organization kind of through the entirety of the book of, of through the tribulation period. And we can see that things are, again, they're going to go from like tough to tougher. And there's going to be a lot that's going to be working against the people of the earth. But some of the good points are going to be that, you know, if you trust in Jesus, you'll be protected, right? If you trust in Jesus before, The rapture will take you out of there, so you won't have to worry about it. If you trust in Jesus during, right, you will be spared some of the punishments. You will kind of have some protection over you, but you still have to kind of go through all this stuff that's going on. And of course, we have the promise of eternal life in Jesus. And again, James gets to talk about all the really good stuff next week. So come back and have good news to go along with this kind of doom and gloom, right? I apologize. But I have good news too. We have food downstairs. Everybody's welcome, and it's usually very good. And I have no doubt it's going to be this time. So I'm going to pray, and then Morgan's going to sing, and then we could eat. So join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for this time together with these with these people, and for everybody online who's watching. And uh, we thank you for the words that you've given us. It's a little hard to understand um, these prophetic visions, and I think that's purposeful. But I ask that you would help give us the wisdom to kind of see the patterns to figure out what's going to happen and to recognize it if it's happening and to apply it to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.